Last weekend, Nurse Susan and I were able to travel to Maryland's eastern shore to visit her parents. Uh, My mother and father-in-law are quite religious, and their beliefs manifest themselves in serious community work and aid. Uh, Particularly, they provide a great deal of support to the town's unhoused population. Their church runs a food pantry, a meals program, and a thrift store. Our visits don't usually include a lot of political talk, but it was difficult to ignore the pending election result. Both Susan's parents strongly disliked Trump and were happy to see the reports indicate that he had lost. When we were leaving, I noticed a homemade sign in their front yard that I hadn't seen coming in. It was a painted placard that read, Jesus 2020. So I joked that if anyone could create ballots from thin air and steal this election, it would be him. Um, My mother-in-law made a comment about love and forgiveness, which I acknowledged. Uh, Then I mentioned that through my journey from a schoolboy Catholicism and then a long lapse and a brief attempt at Presbyterianism and finally to a more or less indifferent atheist that I am today, I still appreciated one aspect of the historical Jesus above all others, uh, angry Jesus. Um, And so I will read this. in, in honor of my of my mother-in-law, uh, this is the the Gospel of John, chapter two, verses thirteen to twenty-five, uh, for literary reference, uh, of course. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured the changers' money. And overturned the tables. He said to those who sold doves, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered him and said, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Hello, friends and comrades. Rob here in Bunker Studio. Uh, This is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Carl's on the dials remotely, uh, and we own all the means of production. I am very excited to introduce our guest today. David Griscom is a Brooklyn-based writer and researcher. His work can be found at Jacobin and other places. Uh, David is also the co-host and chief economist of The Michael Brooks Show, where his focus is analysis and commentary of the political economy and international affairs from a Marcus Marxist perspective. Uh, David is also a Texas native and, like yours truly, a certified grill man. So I want to welcome David. Thanks for doing it, man. Yeah, man. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, the COVID lockdown has got me on the grill a little too much. Uh, I, had, I, had a do- I had a doctor's appointment about a month ago, I guess, and I'm getting a little up there. You know, I'm in my mid-40s, so she's like, yeah, maybe you should get these tests, and uh, now I have high cholesterol. So, 
Oh no, man. The, <laughs> the pit master's curse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then I saw the LDL and, you know, I said, my wife's a nurse. So she's like, maybe, maybe you eat too many uh, wings and sausage. Do you think? <laughs> I was like, yeah, prob- probably. Yeah. That's the hardest one to give up. Wings. Are, I've been realizing more and more lately are by far my favorite food. Yeah. I mean, dark meat in one little package like that. That's fuck, it's great. Right on the bone. Come on. I know. Uh, so I, I wanted to thank you for joining. So we'll just we'll get right into it. Um, the reason I reached out is, you know, post-election around these parts, um, nobody's satisfied. Nobody's close to satisfied, which is actually good news. Uh, while we had a lot of local electoral success, um, the presidential race kind of sucked up all the organizing energy. And so while we made great strides in organizing people around particular issue sets and candidates, we have to start an effort to spark political awareness in people that connects mass movement politics directly to people's lives. Um, I think like battles of symbols and representation and etiquette is illusory and unproductive. So um, that's sort of the jumping off point. Um, what's your what's your initial take on it? Yeah, I mean, um, right now we are in a, a very difficult position, uh, you know, for the left in general, but also, you know, for the country and what most people are experiencing right now uh, throughout this COVID crisis in particular has really shown how dysfunctional our economic system is for most people. Uh, you know, the, the literal pain and suffering and death even that people have been experiencing uh, lately, you know, have been made worse by this crisis, but it was really the crisis exposing just how fragile the system is for most people. Um, you know, so it's like there's this now this big realization that there's a massive problem. And, and the difficult aspect right now is trying to build those political movements or organizations that can start to get people to stop thinking so much of these problems as individuals and start thinking of them collectively. Yeah, I mean, we have um, some distinct problems here um, because we're fairly insular, it's sort of the idiosyncrasies of uh, a tax haven. You know, the, the LLCs are, are here uh, that are anonymous. You know, you pay a fee for a corporate agent to hold the money here. Uh, we have obviously very lax usury laws and other corporate rules that are baked in that, you know, make it very easy to, you know, run banks here and other things. Um, you know, Wilmington, Delaware, as featured in the Panama Papers, as everybody everybody is aware. Um but we also have um, the general stuff. Um, you know, we like to incent large corporations to come here and commit wage slavery and exploitation. We call it uh, building the tax base. And nobody questions it. Um, and I think that's that's actually the first aspect I want to talk about is um, we've talked about it on the show before. We went and um, sort of gave public comment uh, at a hearing about bringing another Amazon fulfillment center here, uh, which we paid them to come. Uh, We lost. Um, But there is a base of workers um, around the world now at Amazon that I think are forgotten as part of the political process. Um, I know you guys uh, have talked to some Amazon some folks doing organizing at Amazon across the country. Um, what's your take on them uh, and some of those issues around organizing those workers? And then I wanted to bring up something specific I read in the Seattle Times today. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, what Amazon does in the way that they treat their employees um, beyond just the kind of general exploitation that most working class people experience, I mean, it's it's horrendous. Uh 
from, you know, just how technical the workplace is that you're constantly being monitored, um, you know, surveyed. It's, it's, it's a horrific situation. Um, and, you know, Amazon's position of power, basically, you know, essentially becoming a monopoly um, and being the major distributor of, you know, most consumer goods for people, you know, it, it puts us in a, you know, in a dangerous situation where they're just going to continue to expand. And, you know, because of you know their position, they, they need to continue to, you know, grow their infrastructure, um, you know, and most city governments just being completely destroyed, city and state governments being completely destroyed, like they've been for, you know, decades of neoliberalism. They're happy to, you know, take this fool's uh, deal where, you know, basically you subsidize a new uh, facility in your area. Um, and, you know, you get this little burst of enthusiasm from, you know, people in general and the public, you know, oh, look at this politician brought in jobs, um, you know, even even like, let's just say like they're, uh, you know, being genuine in it uh, and, and not completely cynical, like I think most of them are. Uh, you know, these kind of local politicians, you know, without realizing that, you know, five to 10 years later, uh, you're going to be in a situation where all of the other industry um, in your community is going to be really devastated by, you know, the, the role of Amazon. Um, but here's the, the exciting thing about uh, Amazon and organizing against them is because they are such a monopoly force, because so many people depend on them, uh, you actually have a lot of leverage. Um, as a worker there, as a member of that organization to basically be able to shut down production, which for a lot of cities, um, you know, would be very devastating. A lot, so many people are basically solely reliant on Amazon to get their consumer goods now. Um, you know, so if you had a kind of organized strike, you could, you could, you know, you could have chokeholds across the country that you could really make sure that your, your voice is being heard and your demands being met. That being said, that's why Amazon is so successful at surveilling their employees, uh, because they realize that if those people are to organize into any kind of a union, then they would have to improve their working conditions tremendously um, and, you know, provide the kind of basic services that you would expect, uh, you know, a major corporation like uh, Amazon to to pay. And, you know, and like we saw like them having to change their game a little bit uh, just with like, you know, Bernie Sanders and a lot of like the public. Uh, how publicized their poor working conditions were. Not that it's been solved by any um, stretch of the imagination, but you saw, you know, they made some small increases in, in wages and things like that after they got all this negative press, right? They're very attuned uh, to the fact that public opinion could turn on them, you know, drastically. And then also if you saw, you know, um, you know, a significant like workers organization that they could actually, you know, very much uh, wreak havoc on that whole system and, you know, get their demands met. Yeah, I just saw uh, uh, an article today from the Seattle Times. It's about 10 days old. Uh, Amazon warehouses have more costly workplace injury claims than meatpacking or logging, the state of Washington says. So they're trying to uh, get Amazon to pay more into the workers' comp because the numbers say uh, it's more dangerous than meatpacking, logging, and uh, law enforcement. Uh, surprise, surprise. I don't think that would surprise anyone. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's pretty clear that, um, you know, not only are they not represented at the table, uh, they're also in danger, uh, and they're being asked to uh, perform uh, tasks that are, are getting people hurt, you know, more than meatpacking and logging. It's incredible. Oh, my God. You know, and it's just like... A big part of it, too, is like, so there, there's the workers aspect of it. And then also just like the kind of irrationality of this system. 
uh, where it's inc- it's it's incre- incredibly like wasteful, um, you know, to push, for example, like these like one day shipping offers that Amazon has. Um, and what that does is it means for every employee working there, they have more and more pressure to make sure that they're shipping and, you know, sending out as many packages a day um, from these facilities. You know, things that, you know, people honestly in a kind of more just a rational system like, or you can wait like an extra day for, you know, that set of 10 gel pens um, instead of having some guy, you know, running around, making sure that it gets out, um, you know, by a very you know short period of time so that they don't get fired and lose like their, their livelihood, you know, and then, you know, incidentally injuring themselves. I mean, it's just like the whole, the whole uh, incentive system there is just so backwards, uh, you know, from any kind of vision of like justice or safety. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think we had the same situation, um, I wanted you to touch on um, sort of, I guess we'll talk about the gig economy as a as a whole, but um, Uber, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, uh, the proposition they just passed in California, and, and again, uh, members of the economy that are on the fringe um, that really have uh, absolutely sort of no rights, and again, not represented in any, any sort of um, political movement at all. Uh, in fact, go back to Amazon, you know, Jay Carney, the, the Obama... Uh, the Obama administrator uh, is the person who's running the 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 Amazon sort of uh, what do you call it uh, surveillance um, to ensure that they will not organize. So you know there there's no connection to politics for any of these workers. But uh, but again, uh, the gig workers and 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 sort of Uber and Lyft. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'd also add too that, like, not only is, is Carney participating in their surveillance, uh, you know, this is somebody who spent years in the Obama administration and is now, you know, as a major part of his job description, uh, was smearing and slandering uh, Chris Smalls, who is a, a Amazon employee up in New York. Uh, who was getting very worried about the increase in COVID in his workplace and that people weren't protected um, and that people weren't social being asked to social distance. They weren't being provided masks, basic kind of health, um, you know, standards. Now at this point, this was still very early on in the pandemic. You know, this guy, basically Jay Carney, his job became to slander this man. Um, And it was really despicable. And it's just be a reminder about uh, the kind of open door policy between corporate America and even, you know, what people might consider the left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, which I would obviously push back against that characterization. But, you know, this is somebody who worked in the Obama administration, which people sort of found to be, you know, this really progressive or, um, you know, different style of Democratic Party politics. And, you know, on the other side of it, they're all just basically uh, running interference for major corporations. But anyways, I don't want to get distracted by that. But it also should be noted that, you know, all these people are coming into, uh, uh, you know, coming into, uh, uh, you know, likely Biden administration. You know, Kamala Harris's uh, brother is somebody who has deep ties with Uber and the Prop 22 campaign, uh, which is what we'll talk about right now. Is like this is what's happening with gig workers in this country is. You know, around 100 years ago, uh, you had a very radical labor movement in this country, and they were able to win significant victories for working people. Uh, You know, victories that we now sort of sometimes take for granted, things like an eight-hour workday, having the weekends off, paid sick leave, uh, holidays. Um, Well, all we've seen, especially over the past 30, 40 years, is the erosion of those expectations at the job. So the idea that, you know, you get a pension or you get health insurance through your employer, all these things like people don't expect that as much. And more and more workers are now categorized as what's called independent contractors. Um, And that's just, you know, a kind of weasel word, uh, you know, 
legal term for for employers to basically not have to treat their employees as employees, meaning that all the risk falls onto the employees instead of the employer. Uh, and it's really horrific. And, you know, I think looking at Uber and Lyft is obviously uh, that's something that people are going to focus on, and rightfully so. Those are massive corporations. But this is something that's actually bleeding off into, like, most workplaces, too. Um, but just to paint the picture using Uber and Lyft, you know, one thing that Uber and Lyft are able to do um, is to not have to invest in their own um, in their own capital and the things that they need to do use to make money. What do I mean by that? Cars, right? Uber and Lyft, they say that they're technology companies, but essentially they're just like a very high-tech uh, taxi service. And if you owned a taxi service, what would you have to do? Well, you'd have to buy cars and then you'd have to maintain them and deal with the depreciation and the value of those vehicles and replace them and do that over time, right? That's like a business cost. What Uber and Lyft do um, is they hire people who then use their own private vehicles. So those private vehicles are taking on the damage and the depreciation um, in value. And then obviously, you know, over the long term, uh, wear and tear, right? That protects Uber and Lyft from having to worry about those significant business costs uh, to run a taxi service in a major city, um, you know, and uh, that's, and they're only able to do that because, uh politicians and our legal system right now has basically taken a hands-off approach. Um, and when you started to see a more proactive uh, movement in California, where they basically passed the law saying like, actually, you know what, uh, you do have employees and you have a lot of them and you need to start taking care of them. Uh, you know, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and a few of those other corporations got together. And I think it was something like $250 million they spent on Prop 22, um, getting that passed in California um, and passed this draconian uh, ballot initiative that is now going to officially, um, you know, consider these gig workers as independent contractors. Um, and not only that, also cement that like permanently. Uh, you have to have, according to the law that they passed, uh, a seven-eighths uh, supermajority to be able to make any amendments to it. Um, I, you know, there's hopefully going to be political solutions to dealing with this crisis, but we just need to understand that uh, not only are our opponents sort of on the move on this one, that they're they're moving very quickly and effectively. Yeah, um, you you mentioned um, the strides that were made in the 30s, um, you know, about a hundred years ago, and and they, as we know, were were mass labor organizing, sit down strikes. Um, there were wildcat strikes. There was uh, some violence, um, not some violence. There was, you know, significant violence. Um, and we get to today where, where labor seems to sit here in Delaware, for example. Um, the traditional trade unions um, are basically reactionary. Um, the teachers union, which in some states has gotten a lot of victories, uh, West Virginia, I think Colorado, somewhere out west, they, they had a big victory as well. Uh, but our teachers unions are more like associations. You know, um, they do have some protections uh, within the workplace and they do set, you know, work rules, but they have no um, ability to strike. I, I don't, uh, you know, there's legal, there's, there's legal uh, ramifications for them to strike. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to real wide swaths of workers that aren't engaged in politics at all. Amazon, gig economists, uh, retail and big box stores. Um, as you said, something that can do uh, significant, can make a significant damage into, you know, feeding the, what that capital needs to keep keep going. Um, what have you seen um, uh, elsewhere as far as um, 
sort of organizing those kind of workers. I know I, I, I saw you mention some moves with fast food. I know those workers have been trying to organize in different states. Um, what other organizing, you know, can, do you have some details on some of the other sort of working class organizing that's going on? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, talking about union structures is difficult, especially since they vary very much, you know, industry by industry and state by state. You know, there's a problem in the United States, obviously, uh, with a lot of like union officials basically having a comfortable position um, where they're representing and their interests actually sometimes can don't always match up very well uh, with their base. Right. And that's primarily people trying to maintain, you know, good political relationships with the powers that be. Um, But that being said, I think there are a lot of openings. Um, I did an interview on uh, TMBS and. Um, recently with a union organizer down in Texas who was able to get the Texas AFL-CIO, uh, which if you aren't familiar, means uh, a lot of workers who work in the fossil fuel industry, um, to endorse a Green New Deal. And, you know, they did that by by talking to people's basic, uh, you know, material needs. Like, the thing, like, even in an industry that you think that people would, like, inherently just, like, react poorly to, like, some you know, more radical environmental policy, um, you know, they all understand uh, that, you know, these jobs don't seem like they're going to be there that much longer. And help for people who have been uh, in the oil industry, uh, you know, we've actually seen this massive uh, loss in profitability in the oil industry over this past, the COVID crisis, right? So people have seen, like, jobs going away. Um, and that these are industries that are actually very much under threat. So talking about things, for example, like a just transition, um, you know, was very effective because people said, okay, I don't, I, I'm not going to fight for the, the profits of my boss, but I sure as hell am going to fight for, to make sure I have an income and a, you know, base standard of living that I'm used to. Um, and then, you know, will you say, okay, well, that's why we're providing, you know, just transition to make sure that you don't have any interruptions to your standard of living and that you are very much not only brought in, but have a leading role um, in trying to build a new kind of more renewable economy, right? Anyways, that message worked really well. Um, you know, not not saying that that's the one and only, you know, silver bullet, but that's a very encouraging moment. Um, and, and as you were saying, the, uh, 100% fast food workers have been organizing. Um, you know, people are realizing that they need to band together. I think the real issue that we have right now is not to get too philosophical, but it's just sort of this like, a feeling that we are in a moment of of history where uh, our horizons are very limited, right? It's almost a kind of, you know, you know, it's like a political depression, basically. It's just like, I can only do things to prevent things from getting worse. I can't do anything to make things better. And until we start on the left, basically providing options to people and proving to them that not only um, are there better ideas out there, but that these better ideas are possible, you know, we will continue to be on the back foot. And I think that transition is what we have to start thinking about um, and and working towards and not to go on too long, but I would just really, you know, briefly mention it's important to think about what we were talking about the 1930s, right? That incredible moment of like labor military, um, you know, militant labor movements um, that were able to get a significant amounts of demands. Well, let's think about how those developed. I mean, a lot of those movements, they came out of the Knights of Labor and the American Populist Movement. And those movements came out before we had any conception of what, you know, a labor union looks like or what, you know, workers uh, organizations look like. What happened then is you had people who were being screwed over by the system, specifically like farmers in the South and the West who were 
in completely indebted to like the merchant class, they started getting together, talking about their issues. And then they started saying, okay, well, the problem here seems to be, um, you know, one, we're not making enough money, but why? It's because like monetary policy is very much working against us. Um, you know, so they started to come up with political solutions that had, you know, immediate demands for what they wanted to see. And that was, uh, introduction of a silver standard to the U.S. dollar. Um, and anyways, those built up into like massive political organizations that almost shaped the politics of this country. And then out of those organizations, that's how you started to see, you know, the kind of proto-labor unions um, and the political organizations that very much were leading this, uh, you know, the movements in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, right? Like we have to start thinking kind of boldly like that too. And there's not a specific blueprint, but we really just, like what we got to do is start getting people together to start thinking about the direct issues in front of them and start figuring out how we can build the organizations that we need, uh, you know, to deliver our, you know, our demands and to achieve our demands. Yeah, that's the that's the the moment in history where I'm, I continue to go back to it and say, okay, what what kind of messaging? Sort of like you said in Texas, they're able to go and say, well, you know, these resources are finite, you know, what it's doing to the environment, and so we can lay all of these things out. And so, just for preservation, we we should think about taking political steps. That worked there. It's sort of like a messaging thing. Like, how do we uh, get to that point where we create something new outside of the dynamic that people are used to? Um, I think uh, Professor Bajlan said it on TMBS last night. Um, there's a there's a relationship people have to capital that they don't that's not they don't under not that they don't understand. It's it's purposely masked from them, and being able to in a creative way kind of drop that and get everybody together I think outside of the way that they normally think about it I mean this is this is why people are apathetic right because I think both parties both political parties and the whole political conversation is is monopolized by discussions that take into account to that never take into account those who work and and those who own everything that never never takes that into it's never ever taken into account so how do we how do we uh, push that into somewhere where it's being pushed out? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, that's like not treated as a, a political question, right? It's like, right. you know, it's, that's like getting mad about the rain, you know what I mean? It's, uh, yeah, and we have to change that dynamic. I mean, I think there's a few ways to do that. I think the labor question, I think people paint that picture. But let me just do a, another one. Um, I think it is becoming almost universal understanding in this country um, for people that you just can't afford to to really rent or held buy in this country like to buy a home as a house yourself which is you know i think most people would recognize as a very basic uh you know human need is is, is shelter um and you know this you know progressives know the stats like there is no state in the country there's no place in the country that where you know a working person on minimum wage working 40 hours a week could afford you know a one-bedroom apartment right um that's a hundred percent of reality of of the situation that we're in right now and why does that happen well it happens because of of the rich and it happens because we have a system that privileges exchange value over use value what does that mean exchange value is the value that you get on the market so that's the monetary value and then the use value are all the things that you can use a house for to house a family you know to rent a little business out of to store things whatever like those are the use values um, and our society so privileges the exchange value um, that is completely out of touch uh with what its actual use value is for people. Um, and you've seen that, and it gets really, really bad um, in a moment like we're having right now, not to get too 
ethereal with this, but um, where the rich have so much money and there's not really many opportunities for them to make money on investment as like they were like 50, 60 years ago. Um, so they do two things with money. They buy, they buy stocks, which, you know, are just increasing in value completely unrelated to the actual like on the ground conditions of most uh, companies in this country. And they buy property and they buy a lot of property. Um, and the, the one thing that's really important for people to remember is that like, uh, you know, I'm sure plenty, you know, people listening to this, some people own their house or something like that. But like the people who like really own property, it's a very small group of people in this country who own a significant amount of, of property uh, and, you know, specifically rental property, which they understand is like an incredible investment that they can hold um, for a very long time. Anyways, what that does is all of these super wealthy buyers coming out there and basically vacuuming up all of the, uh, you know, the property in this country. That means that the price is just going to continue to increase because there are buyers who can afford these, you know, exceptionally high rates. Um, but for the vast majority of people who aren't in that kind of, you know, super elite, super wealthy class, uh, you know, the housing becomes further and further from being something that's available to them. Um, and, and that's how you can start to, you know, bring that up, that example to say like, okay, you know, you can't start from like the, the big problem of like finance capital and like, you know, even inequality, right. But you can start actually in something that most people understand. It's like, I can't afford my rent or I feel like I'm paying way too much in rent. And then you can start to build up a narrative that is starting to touch at these like larger problems. Does it touch on everything completely? No. Does it go in depth enough on everything? No, but this is the kind of messaging that we need to start planning people's heads that they sort of see individual problems, um, you know, problems that they're seeing right in front of them in their daily life. And then to start thinking about them systematically. Um, yeah, I agree. It's interesting that you said that because that's one of the things that I've been working on here with some people over the last two or three weeks. Um, we have a sort of a nonprofit board. It's like a public-private partnership, whatever you want to call it, that runs the public housing in the city. And, you know, as you can probably imagine, it's not the situation's not super. Um, so recently, a group of tenants... Uh, we're complaining about the conditions of, of their apartments in, in one building um, across the river here and uh, created a little dust up sort of at a, uh, at a WHA meeting. And I, although it was uh, kind of I don't think everybody took it that well because, you know, there was some uh, acceleration of, uh, of, of of process there. It pushed their way into a room. Um, but uh, I, I think it's going to be important now. I didn't know a lot about the issue, and I started talking to some people who were involved. And, you know, come to find out, you know, there's a little tenants board in the building, but, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, older, older folks, um, aunties and stuff, and, and they just are, are trying to go along to get along and, and don't really have never been organized and don't expect very much. If they do raise an issue, um, they sort of they get bullied a little bit or, or you know, they don't, you know, the, the, the situation there is, is, is not great. Um, so another group of tenants stepped up, but they weren't really organized and created this sort of situation. But this is a lesson learned, you know. Uh, if you can get this building and other buildings that kind of have similar issues together, it sort of breaks out of that, you know. And it doesn't have to be, you know, heavy theory. It doesn't have to solve every. It doesn't have to solve every problem. What it says is, you have material conditions like in your home, um, uh, because of the because of exactly what you described, because of the you know the commodification of everything else, because it's a commodity really. It's not your house. Um, uh, and you can organize around that. You can actually that you can make that a political argument and mobilize people around a political argument like that. That opportunity is there. And I'm excited to see 
um, how that goes. You know, it's sort of nascent there. Um, but I, I totally agree with you. That's a huge one, housing here. Yeah, I mean, I think I think housing is is probably going to be, you know, if if you're a historian and looking back at this time, if we were able to build the kind of future that I'd like to build, I think that housing is going to be a key component of building it. You know, as also it should be noted, as it was in most other like kind of radical socialist movements too. I mean, that's why public housing um, was was such an emancipatory demand and is such you know continues to be a demand of you know progressives and socialists, democratic socialists, uh, you know, because it's something that directly affects people's lives and it's something that. Uh, capitalism as a system, you know, it really muddles and, and makes, you know, having a proper a, a system that's able to house people, uh, you know, viable. You know, you look at like Red Vienna, uh, you know, Vienna has one of Vienna um, has one of the most prolific uh, public housing systems in the in the globe. And it, it should be noted, too. When Americans think of public housing, they think of drab and droll and run down and not well maintained properties. Um, that's a hundred percent a political choice in this country, and you know it's very much a purposeful one. They want to make public housing punitive, which it shouldn't be. Um, and you look at Vienna; uh, over fifty percent of the people in Vienna actually live in public housing, and it's not because you know there's some exceptional poverty in the city. It's because it's been a deliberate political project for over 115 years there to build it, um, and you know people pay as a scale of their income. Um, and, uh, you know, you have all these really interesting, you know, structures. You have entire parts of the town that are like bike villages, uh, you know, where there's no cars or anything like that. Um, you know, and pe people are very happy with their standard of living. I mean, you should look them up um, if anyone's curious. Like, the buildings are absolutely beautiful. The, the units are incredible. Um, and that's like a legacy of people coming together, organizing tenant associations, then obviously that grew into like socialist organizations that were able to take power and build those. Um, but it's a, it's a huge success model. Um, and it's something that we can look towards to try to replicate uh, in our cities as we really are you know, living through a, a massive housing crisis in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. So before we talk about something fun at the end, I'll try to put you on the spot and see, see what you think about it. Um, I feel like the, at the root of um, all of this work and, and organizing people around um, either the work they do, um, their home, or their their relationship to capital and trying to politically organize them that way is a way to sort of transcend um, the cultural and, and regional prejudices that we have baked into politics. Like all of those are sort of baked in now. Um, I mean, I know you deal with a lot of them being from Texas, the way people talk about the South or Texas or these people or that people, and it's nonsense. Um, but that's tricky uh, because when people organize at their at their work uh, or when people organize the people that live in their building, for example, you run into people that don't like think the same way you do, uh, and it becomes a political obstacle in trying to organize those people. Um, I guess what I'm getting around is the class reductionist argument and how you generally handle that when you're making these sorts of um, when you're making these sorts of arguments because I come I run into them all the time too and I I sort of I sort of explain them the way I just did I think we need to transcend them by bringing everybody together but it's a it's a tricky it's a, it's a tricky uh, little two step uh, we all need to do and I, I'm wondering how you you do it yeah I mean. Well, I'll just say, you know, first of all, it should be noted, like the most exciting moments we've ever had in this country when it comes to like left working class organizing um, really has just been 
that you talk about issues that are right in front of you. And, uh, you know, people were able to organize around those. So like the populist movement that we talked about, uh, you actually saw like incredible movements of like white and black, uh, people, you know, organizing together. And let's, you know, let's not forget that this is like, you know, just decades after, you know, the, the system of, of slavery had been ended in this country. And I'm not saying that the populists necessarily were like social liberals, um, but by, organizing people on the direct issues that were, you know, workers were experiencing, you know, black or white, uh, you know, farmers, uh, you were basically able to build political organizations. And those were also able to, you know, work down some of the, you know, kind of uh, social barriers that have been, you know, developed by capital. Anyways, that's just a historical point um, to make. I mean, I think that it's really important, um, you know, that we don't make arguments that are too determinate. I think what we're seeing uh, right now is the Democratic Party's belief that, you know, demographics somehow are like destiny. And that like based on, you know, what like race box you check um, on the census, that that's going to tell something significantly, um, you know, about you. And, uh, you know, we're finding that that's really not the case. I think what we saw in this most recent election was an example of that, um, that even though, you know, minorities in general, you know, are voting a Democrat more than they're voting Republican, uh, those numbers are being eaten away out of, right? And that's because you have this kind of determinist outlook uh, on, the Democratic Party does, this determinist outlook on people and saying like, oh, we're not going to show up and, uh, you know, campaign in those areas because they're safe and we don't need to, right? And I think that that actually is just like, I'm just saying on a self-preservation level, like that's going to be a disastrous strategy if they don't start coming into communities and fighting for folks. Um, but, you know, the fact is this, uh, you know, we all have different, uh, you know, backgrounds or whatever, but we're all living under under capital. We're all living in a system uh, where your life has gone significantly worse over the past six months. Uh, meanwhile, American billionaires uh, increased their wealth by $637 billion since the pandemic has started, right? Like, what side of that equation are you on, right? And until we start to uh, you know, build communities that are able to, you know, political organizations that are able to one, get everybody in the same room um, to start to tear down the kind of, you know, uh, historical and social issues that we have in this country. Um, we also will come no closer to dealing with this fundamental economic problem. And it's just like, you know, something that Adolf Reed talks about, for example, I mean, what's going on in this country is, is really strange right now. Uh, you know, look at the coronavirus um, vaccine. So, you know, if you're an anti-racist, you believe that there is no genetic um, difference between races, right? Um, and, you know, that has been something that people have f had to fight against for years, especially in this country that, you know, white supremacists, scientists, and like doctors have been trying to prove for a really long time that there's some kind of genetic difference between race, races and populations. Um, and it's been, been shown to be completely wrong over and over and over. Well, anyways, uh, I bring that up because... Uh, <laughs> You also have this really nasty history in this country of using, uh, you know, marginalized populations as like guinea pigs uh, for new, you know, um, for new medical treatments and things like that. And what we've seen um, with this, you know, coronavirus, with this like coronavirus testing, the vaccine testing has now been a targeting of black and brown communities in this country to test the vaccine on them um, because there's this argument um, you know, that those communities are, you know, more susceptible uh, to the virus than white communities. Well, the problem there, though, is not that those people are genetically uh, more, you know, 
in danger of the virus is because those are communities that are underserved medically. Um, and those are communities that are underserved in infrastructure to deal with something like this. Right. And what that, you know, that story has done is basically put um, the people who should be um, answering to the problem of, you know, the higher death rates or, you know, higher infection rates in black and brown communities on the stand. It, it avoids them having to take responsibility for it. And it also gives corporations like Pfizer, right, a huge opportunity to test a new medical drug on massive populations and to not be attacked for participating in one of the most nasty American traditions, which is using those communities as, you know, research uh, communities. Yeah, and I will mention, too, another thing is uh, those folks are disproportionately the ones who have to go to work and do service jobs uh, during a pandemic, serve food, do whatever. Like, that's that's the fact. I mean, so it's you can always... There, there is a there is a function playing out that that's pretty clear to me, and yeah, and then we just kind of fall back on this sort of racial difference, and it's just absurd. It's so weird. And and do you mind if I just say something really quick uh, to make sure that I'm I'm being absolutely clear here? The, what you just said is 100 percent right. Those people are working in those kind of service jobs, and those are you know outgrowths of you know racism and, and racial history in this country. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, and but it's really important that we recognize. Um, why those systems are put in place, right? And, uh, you know, it's fundamentally um, is, you know, it's economics, right? It's, it's fundamentally that there, that this system needs to have a class of people who are working those incredibly dangerous jobs. And they'll use any tool that they can to make sure that there's populations being forced into that work. Um, and it's just really important um, that as we're trying to push back against those systems and anti-racism, that we don't accept the logic of our opponents on it, right? Um, and that's what I was getting at with like, there, yes. there's no, there is actually no genetic difference between, you know, between communities, right? And we need to avoid essentializing, um, not because we're ignoring the actual realities of, of what is happening, but because we're saying we're going to say that this is a, this is a, um, a relationship that is like put upon us by society for a function of benefiting a few wealthy people. Yeah, I mean, people certainly experience, and and I'll speak for myself too. Uh, people know, and and you know, you made it very clear. People, racism is a real thing. You know, people experience it, and it's 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 heinous. Um, but it's it's a um, it's a it's a mechanism that was built. It's not inherent. It's not, as you said, essential. It was a mechanism built for particular reasons, and probably the best way to uh, dismantle it all is to organize everybody in a mass movement so everybody's treated fairly. Um, because, yeah, I mean, you cannot ignore what it is because it's certainly, you know, that's... that's and again, this is why I brought up the, 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 this point because when you, when, whenever you get into, you know... I, I've heard Adolf Reed make this point, you know, talking to people in South Carolina at a, at a, at a factory or, or some sort of industrial plant or something, you know, there's, there's, there's people who are, who are just kind of racist you know they don't like they don't like they don't understand trans or or, or uh, gay or or, or, homo- or uh, lesbian rights lgbtq rights right um but we can kind of get past that and transcend it w- without you know and 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 marginalize it and, and and better by organizing the way we're talking about than by sort of using the using the artificial wedge that was created uh in some other way you know, that's the kind of how I try to. Yeah. And like, you know, I mean, uh, this kind of conversation, I think it's important to, you know, be prepared for, you know, this kind of situation. But I think this kind of conversation 
also like overdetermines how large of a population that group of people is, right? There are people out there like that. Um, but when we're talking about organizing massive workers, we're not saying let's organize, you know, masses of races, right? We're just saying we're going to organize mass populations. And in that, you know, circumstance, we're going to come across, you know, people who are, you know, with horrendous beliefs. And the hope is either that you either, you know, suppress that kind of mentality in your organization so much um, that those people, you know, either drop it or learn to act better. Um, and then the second aspect is that, you know, by getting people to organize together, that a lot of those beliefs don't, um, aren't able to hold water in a, any kind of mass organization um, because they are, you know, yeah, they're, 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 they're beliefs that, uh, you know, are meant to divide people and organizations that are meant to unite people, you know, tend to have the ability to break those down. Um, but again, it's just like, it's important to not to overdetermine it where we're thinking that, yeah. you know, I don't think that, you know, I think an Adolf Reed is, is, has a great example of that. You know, I, I lived in South Carolina for a long time. That's a state that has horrible, serious histories of like racism. I mean, like horrific. Yeah. Um, and Adolf Reed is organizing workers there, you know, and it's also it should be reminding people those are highly diverse thing, you know, when it comes to black and white populations. Adolf Reed is out there organizing black and white populations around Medicare for all and is able to break down those kind of dynamics, those historical dynamics. That's actually the proof of what we're trying to say and how it works rather than, um, you know, the warning. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Um so is there any other, I mean, you, you mentioned a few, and I have seen your interview uh, with the organizer in Texas um, around a Green New Deal. Um, are there any other pieces that you'd like to highlight? I know um, Jacobin's YouTube channel now features quick takes with David Griscom. I mean, wow, that, I saw, I didn't, I knew you had done some videos, uh, but I guess earlier this week I, I had gone in and I was like, you have your whole, you have a whole section now. I love it. Yeah. Those are really funny. I'm really enjoying doing those. I'm doing those with uh, Kale Brooks over at Jack Magazine. Yeah, if anyone's interested, uh, I'd check them out. You know, I've done a few. I, I did one on uh, red states, blue states, which I think is a, a really one I was really happy with. You know, basically pushing back against this idea um, that, you know, basically saying that socialists really need to stop thinking about politics in that way because there's just as many opportunities as we were just talking about in South Carolina to organize around radical proposals and movements um, as there are in New York. Or in California, and don't like accept this kind of uh, you know partisan map um, in your head, where where because I think it's uh, it limits your horizons of possibility because it just gives over entire states, you know, entire populations over to the right wing, for example, you know that are that are won over by the right wing because of gerrymandering and all these problems, and you know it doesn't give you um, a, a, any kind of hopeful path for victory. So we need to move past that. Um, I did one on self help which was one of my favorites, though. People got mad about that one. Oh, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> uh, stuff, yeah. Like like, uh, like uh, New Age stuff or like... Uh... A little, you know, I push back against the Jordan Peterson stuff, obviously. Uh... I push back against the hustle culture. Well, I mean, here's the thing. It's not pushing back against self-help as an idea because um, we all need help. We all need to get better. We all get smarter and we all need to get more caring and, and to listen and do all that kind of stuff. My only warning is there are a lot of people uh, who do who push self-help, and the one thing that they don't want you to ever do is to blame the system or start thinking systematically. And I think that's a very dangerous thing, uh, yeah. as you can imagine. No, I think that's the perfect the perfect the, the the hustle thing where, and and again, it goes back to the gig economy where, you know, if you just if you just work twenty two hours a day and and ate for fifteen minutes and took a nap, you could you too could you know do this. It's like and and if and if you don't, as you said, if you don't achieve, it's a personal failing. Exactly, and that exactly. that's you know that's that feeds right into everything that we're trying to break apart. <laughs> so I just wanted to. Uh, 
mention this. I, I mention this with a lot of guests who I know have this proclivity because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the of the football from England. I know you were you were shut out because you I believe you had you were playing in a pretty uh, a, a pretty competitive league last year. I know you're you're a goalkeeper. You're manning the you're manning the penalty area, and I would be remiss because my brother was a was a pretty accomplished goalkeeper too. Not to mention that uh, not to mention that you took the trophy. Last I year. did, yeah, uh, yeah, a big shot blocker. I saw the the photo of that team. It was a co-ed team, and um, the the ladies on the team looked uh, like they could play. Oh yeah, so honestly, like a- I've used to play pretty serious uh, soccer, you know, at a very high level, and I've been really amazed uh, at this little co-ed league that I've been playing up here. How serious the players are! It's good because I'm incredibly competitive, um, and I. <laughs> And uh, I've tried to play like more casual leagues, but this one is kind of perfect mixture where you can get really worked up and everybody wants to win. Yeah, it looked. It looks. It looked I miss it already. Yeah, man, it's yeah, been a year. Uh, yeah, yeah. Everybody shut out. I, 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 everything I like to do, even this little studio that I had. You know, I was telling Carl, we, I'm like, maybe someday we'll be able to get back in here and do something in here. I have no idea. We've been shut out for you know since March. I guess the beginning of March. Yeah, no, I'm starting to feel normal though, which is the weird part. Yeah, that. I mean, I guess we're gonna have no choice but to sort of like uh, accept whatever differences come. But yeah, I, I mean, I went to the grocery store yesterday and an N95 mask. You know, our numbers are spiking here, just sort of like a lot of places in the country. And I'm like, man, it feels like it's never gonna end. It's just ha- yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, we got a lot of work to do, and we'll we'll keep on doing it. Uh, David, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. That was really fun. Yeah. Well, everyone, uh, you know how to reach us on Patreon at the Highlands Bunker. Uh, David's on TMBS, uh, the Michael Brooks Show, and on Jacobin. You know how to reach out and do all that. Um, And as we always say, um, left is best. Left is best.